Welcome to Break in the Case, True Stories by NYPD Detectives, a podcast series written and produced by the New York City Police Department and supported by the New York City Police Foundation. I'm your host, Detective Carrie Riley. This is episode four of the Baby Hope case. In the summer of 1991, the body of a small child was found in a cooler on the side of a highway. We thought we were going to solve it really quick. But years passed without any real progress. Well, I remember having this meeting in the office, and we all looked at each other, and we said, like, yo, what's there left to do with this? And somebody said, well, let's, can we bury her? Finally, on the 21st anniversary of finding the body, a tip was called into Crime Stoppers. And they told me that maybe five years before, a person in a laundromat told them that they saw their sister in a bag dead in the refrigerator. Our reporter is Edward Conlon, a former detective. A warning, the story contains disturbing content and may not be suitable for everyone. Please be advised. Episode four, Baby Hope, the girl in the white dress. Some cops move around a lot in their careers. If you rise through the ranks, you're going to a new command with each promotion. But the way I see it, more often than not, detectives tend to look for a home. I wanted to know if Bobby Dewhurst felt the same. Can you talk a little bit about what you like about Cold Case? We're kind of like the last stand, the last defense of of these forgotten cases. You know, when you talk to any one of these families, it's almost as if it still had happened yesterday. It never goes away. I mean, you can accept certain things to a point like, you know, somebody gets into an accident and they die. But when somebody intentionally takes someone's life away, parents have the what if, what happened, what did I do wrong, the survivor guilt. You know, by doing this type of work, you're standing up for the dead. The difference with Baby Hope was that there was no grieving family. No mother and father to disappoint if the case stayed open. It seemed to me that nobody really cared about that little girl. So it was like a victim without a family. And uh, I guess uh, we were her family. But there was a family, maybe. Someone called Crime Stoppers with a secondhand story about an awkward conversation in a Bronx laundromat that may have happened five years before. A woman had a childhood memory of seeing the dead body of her sister. The rest of the tip is a little complicated. The woman's aunt was named Christina Castillo, and she lived above the laundromat. Christina's sister, the mother of the dead child, was named Margarita. They didn't know where she lived. It didn't seem like the most solid foundation to build on, but it was, far and away, the best lead we'd had in decades. At Crime Stoppers, Detective Elena Donnell couldn't wait to tell Bobby Dewhurst, and he was thrilled to hear it. She was excited because, you know, this was big. He drove directly to the laundromat and had detectives from the Bronx Cold Case Squad, Steve Berger and Mark Tebbins, meet him there. The laundromat was on the ground floor of an apartment building. They couldn't go straight to the Castillo apartment, they didn't know where it was, and they couldn't ask around for Christina. They didn't know if she still lived there, if she ever did. They'd have to go door to door with a cover story to find out. We went with a ruse. It was a little weak, I think. They said that a guy had been robbed, and they were trying to get hold of his girlfriend, who was supposed to live in the building. It's a little complicated, even a little boring. That was the point. They didn't want people to care about what they were asking about. 
and they didn't want to be remembered. I had to go to each and every apartment and knock on each door and give this story. <laughs> so nobody, nobody knows anything. But then I get down to the, actually the last apartment and a man opens up the door. His name is... Uh... The man's name was not Castillo. I says, all right, do you have a daughter about 25 years old? I'm trying to find out if she's related to this man who got robbed. And he's like, no, he says, my oldest daughter, and he pointed to a toddler. I says, ah, that's not it. Well, maybe your son. He points, I mean, his son's there, but he's 17. I'm like, oh, all right. But I look past him, and I see there's a woman way in the background. So I guess she's in the kitchen, and she's on the phone. I says, what about her? Who's that? He says, oh, that's my wife, Christina. Christina, oh, Christina Castillo. Like, oh, so now I know I'm in the right spot. And I'm, you can't jump for joy, but I got to continue with the ruse. And I go, hey, you know what? What's, what's her date of birth? You know, what's your date of birth? What's his date of birth? Oh, and what's her? You know, just making small talk. And then I said to him, uh, I said, you know what? Listen, in case my boss is asking me a question that maybe I missed, can I get your phone number? Because I don't want to come back here and bother you. So he gave me his phone number. So we went back to the Bronx office, me, Mark, and uh, Steve. So that was significant. There were a lot more dots to connect. We started doing computer checks, found somebody in Queens, but we weren't sure. So we were about to go out, and then Mark Tebbins was the voice of reason. He's like, whoa, this is big. Maybe we ought to slow down. And he was right. So we ended it there. And the next morning, I called up Melissa Morges, who's the district attorney who had been on the case. And I said, Melissa... I want a subpoena for the telephone traffic. It took weeks for the phone records to come back. The next step was to send out another round of subpoenas for subscriber IDs for every number calling in or out to that line. It would have taken weeks again, at least, for those to come back. Instead, he did a few ordinary internet searches with the phone numbers, and he managed to identify Margarita Castillo in a couple of minutes. He found that she had a non-driver ID and requested her photo. And so Bobby Dewhurst went to Queens with two other detectives from Cold Case, Wendell Stradford and Stephen Litwin. Stradford had worked on the Baby Hope case for years. Litwin was new to the squad. It was August 22nd, almost a month after the tip came in. They had to do the same old rigmarole again, hitting every apartment in the building so no one would think they were being targeted. And Wendell had on his, uh, I think it was a Blackberry at that time, he had a photo array on it. A photo array has six pictures, a suspect and five fillers. Wendell had one from another case, so this was just a random picture of some guy. I should mention that I've knocked on thousands of doors in my cop lifetime. It's called canvassing, and you canvass for every major crime. In some neighborhoods, doors are knocked on routinely. Did you hear anything about three in the morning? No gunshots? And then it's on to the next door, the next floor. Citizens of New York City should assume that when a cop knocks to show you a picture, they're looking for that guy. They are not there because an anonymous caller said something that led to the possibility that one of your neighbors might be a person of interest in a 22-year-old child murder. We go door to door, door to door with this story. And of course, we always start from the top. And of course, what we're looking for is on the bottom. (laughs) So the door opens up and and the chain was on the door. And I seen half of her face and it was Margarita. I'm showing a picture, trying to tell her something. And I get no entiendo, no hablo inglés. I'm like, okay, okay, Madonna. And and, uh, I'll be back. The NYPD is about 30% Latino, and we have over 2,000 certified Spanish translators. 
But the Brooklyn office of Cold Case was tiny then, maybe five detectives. And Dewhurst wanted someone good. Stephen Litwin had just come to our command. Stephen said he had a, a woman that he worked with, Evelyn Gutierrez, and special victims. So he got a hold of her. They went back to Brooklyn to meet Detective Gutierrez. At this time, I tweaked the plan again. A single photo would be better than six. Dewhurst picked out someone who looked like an especially nasty character. I go back to that door. I got Evelyn with me and I got Stephen with me. I have an envelope and I have this picture. And I knock on the door and she's there. And then I say, we got to talk to you. And she's a little reluctant to let us in, but Evelyn's there translating my questions and her answers. So we get in the apartment and I start talking to her. I said, I'm looking for this guy. And she turns around and says, that's not the picture you showed me. <laughs> so I was like, all right, all right. Look, I wasn't going to think fast. I wasn't going to show you the picture of who I was looking for because uh, you would have told them and tipped them off. But right now I'm taking a chance. I want to know where this guy is. And she's like, I don't know him. I don't know him. What I wanted to do was, like, they used to say when I was like uh, undercover narcotics, I wanted to come out of sideways. I didn't want to come out of direct. I'm not sure if she's seen the television that night of me asking for help. And if she did, it would have been all done with. Dewhurst and other officers had been all over the news a month before talking about baby Hope. I wasn't aware of the fact if she was responsible in any way or involved in any way with this, with this crime of the girl being murdered. You never know what people know. Everything? Nothing? Let's step back for a second. Lots of people don't like talking to cops for a lot of reasons. Some have had bad experiences with us, and some are bad people. With immigrants, there's another whole raft of concerns. Maybe the person answering the door is documented, but other members of the household are not. So far, all we have is a tip and only the insignificant parts have been confirmed, that a lady in the Bronx named Christina has a sister named Margarita. But if Margarita really was Baby Hope's mother, Dewhurst had to be very, very careful. So I came at her with this ruse of that photograph, and I show it to her, and I said, who's this? He says he lives here, who's this? She's like, no, 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 is this your husband? No, 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 and then I, I calm it down. I'm like, whose children are these in this house? My daughter's. Well, is this one of their husbands? No, 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 no. And then now, so I created a problem, and you know, I create the problem to solve it now. So then I turn around and I go, you know what? I, I don't know, but maybe all you gotta do is ju just, if you don't know the guy, just write on here on the paper, you don't know him, and maybe you won't have to go to court, because nobody wants to go to court, right? <laughs> so she writes, I don't know him, something really, you know, I don't know who he is. And I tell her, put it in the envelope. And then she does, and I says, seal it, and then sign your name across it. Margarita licked the envelope to seal it and handed it back to Dewhurst. Now he had what he needed. I got her DNA. And then when I left, I said, listen, I'm going to come back, but I got to talk to your daughters because they may know who this guy is. And she rambled off a list of all her daughters. She said she had eight kids, all girls. Dewhurst wrote down their names and ages. I took that, I invoiced the envelope, I sent it to the lab, and I came back out there with Stephen and Evelyn again. But when I knocked on her door, she wasn't at home. Margarita wasn't at home, but her daughters were. She had twins from another marriage. And when I'm talking to them, the same thing, do you know this guy or, or whatnot, had them seal the envelope, sign the envelope so it wouldn't mix them up. 
And they said, you should talk to Maribel down the block. Maribel was one of their sisters. The interesting thing was that Bobby Dewhurst hadn't heard her name before. Margarita hadn't included her on her list of kids. Honest mistake? Maybe. One way to find out. Fortunately, Maribel lived nearby. So I went down a few doors, I knocked on the door, and when I seen Maribel, she looked just like the picture. Maribel looked like the sketch of Baby Hope, grown up and come to life. The envelopes went to the lab for DNA analysis in August. It's the beginning of October when Dewhurst gets the news that detectives have been waiting to hear for 22 years. I got the results back that Margarita Castillo is, in fact, the mother of Baby Hope. First, he called his boss, James O'Neill. He was the chief of fugitive enforcement then. He's the police commissioner now. When we did finally get the DNA hit, uh, I was actually driving northbound on the FDR drive, and I swung around and came back to work. It was great to see the look on uh, Detective Dewhurst Bobby's face. Here's Detective Wendell Stratford. Commissioner O'Neill was the chieftain at the time. He told us, pull out all the stops, and give you all the manpower you need, get guys from the task force and from violent felonies, and we just work every day and, you know, get it going. Dewhurst couldn't wait to get back to Queens to talk to Margarita, but there was a hitch again, the same hitch as before. So now I got a result, and now I have nobody in my office that speaks Spanish. I'd been talking to my old partner, Sylvia, on the phone, letting her know what's going on, because she had a vested interest. She worked on it for several years. So I called up Melissa Morges, and I said, hey, Melissa. Melissa Morges was the DA assigned to the case since 1991. How would it be if I brought my retired partner along to do the interview? And she says, that'd be fine. That would look good. We'll be back after the break. So Detective Sylvia Bonet came out of retirement. So we go back and we knock on the door. She's a little agitated, Margarita. She's like, what are you doing here? Why, why'd you come back? I just got to talk to you one more time. And, uh, and that'll be it. That'll be the end of it. She's like, all right, but uh, I, I can't talk to you now. I got to take my grandchildren to school. I was like, hmm. all right. So Sylvia's like, yeah, yeah, let it go. You know, so we go, we get a cup of coffee. They're under a tremendous amount of pressure, but they still can't rush. When Margarita came home, they went back to talk. When we talk to people, this is not a, uh, just a fact, let's get to it and we're in and out. You know, you have to slowly, you know, move into it and get what, get the information you're trying to elicit. So um, my approach is friendly. I says, okay, Margarita, you said you had X amount of kids and went down the list and went down the list and Margarita's over by the stove and she's starting to cook and there's children in the apartment, or grandchildren that she's babysitting and she's starting to cook, and I get up to the part, and I say, well, what about the child that died? And now she's getting nervous. And she's, you know, she's like moving the pots a little bit or a frying pan, and she's like, no, no, you're mistaken. There's, 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 there's no child died. I'm like, Margarita, I, I, I need to know about the child that died. So now I, I get a sense of seriousness because I know everybody's out there waiting, and some of them want to lock her up, you know? And I know, or at least I feel, uh, she's not responsible in the actual death. The reason for that was the evidence of sexual assault. So I walk over to the stove, I shut it off, I take it by the hand, I sat it down, uh, I move in close, and I'm like, Margarita, there are a number of people outside 
who want to arrest you, but I know you didn't kill that little girl. I need to know what happened. And she's crying and, and she's afraid. And, uh, and she's like, uh, uh, I, I, I'll tell you, I'll tell you. And right there and then Sylvia is what, what was her name? And, uh, she said, Angelica Castillo. Baby Hope is Angelica Castillo. Angelica Castillo is Baby Hope. So now we have her name. Actually, we have a case. They read Margarita, her Miranda rights, and she signed them. She was ready to talk. Somebody came to pick up the kids that were there. She said she didn't have the child at the time of her death. In fact, she didn't know Angelica was dead. Always tried to convince herself she wasn't. It's a long story. I'll give a shorter version. Margarita was from a little village in Puebla, Mexico, called Acatlahuacan de Albino Zertuche. A pretty little place, but poor. She was with a guy named Dasa from when she was 13. He was a drinker, abusive. She had three kids with him, she said. She lived with her mother-in-law, and when her mother-in-law died, she took the kids and went back to her own family. And then she met a man by the name of uh, Hanaro Ramirez, and they decided to come to America. Now, Hanaro had relatives in uh, New York City. So she said they crossed the border, and they made their way to uh, New York City. They stay with Hanaro's family in Queens, two nieces and a nephew, Balbina, Efehenia, Conrado. They're maybe a decade apart. Balbina is the oldest, 50 or so, single, no kids of her own, always working. Efehenia is in her late 30s, married with a kid. Conrado is a dishwasher in his 20s, single then. Margarita and Hanaro are there until they save up enough to get their own place. Margarita says she was able to obtain citizenship under the amnesty of 86. Their kids were born here. Three kids pretty fast. Laurencita in 86, Angelica in 87, Maribel in 88. I, I can only assume it was tough because, you know, the immigrants in the city, uh, they don't have very good jobs. And it was tough because Hanaro wasn't so different from her first husband. Bad drinker. Bad to her. And they eventually separate. So they're living apart. She was living in the Bronx at the time. He was living in Queens. Hanaro goes back to live with his nieces, Balbina and Efehenia. His nephew Conrado may have moved out by then. One day, he calls Margarita, asking her to bring the girls over for a visit. They had a nice day. And that as she was about to leave with the three girls, he said, you're not taking the girls. They're my girls. And pushed her out the door. And she managed only to get out the door with Lauren Cita. The two younger girls, Angelica and Maribel, were left behind. She said, all right, they're with the father and children. The nieces are in there. They're adults. She, she just went home with Lauren Cita. Uh, but she comes back. And she knocks on the door. And she's got, like, pampas in this and... Uh, so when she comes back, she gets confronted by Balbina. Balbina delivers a message from Hanaro. The little girls, they're not going to live with you. They're going to live with me. They're my children now. You know, she, she didn't know what to do, according to her. And she left the Pampers or whatever it was she had. Uh, she tried to come back again. They didn't live in that apartment anymore. They moved. She later finds out that Hanaro, the father of the children, he got thrown out of the apartment due to his drinking. So now the kids are with... Balbina and Efihania and her family. According to her, she doesn't know 
where they are. So time goes on. The time part, that's the hardest to figure out. How old were Angelica and Maribel when they went to Queens? How long did they stay? Angelica was murdered in July 1991. I'm guessing here, but the kids could have been there a year or more by then. Margarita said she went to look for the girls, made some calls. It was probably around 1995 when a friend who knew both families called her with some news. Balbina had died. The friend also told Margarita where her children were living. And she goes over there, she knocks on the door, there's no answer, but she sees little kids' shoes, um, you know, outside the door and all this. She feels that's it. But eventually she gets a phone call from Conrado. Conrado is Balbina and Afahenia's brother. And he says, "Why? What, what do you want? Why are you harassing my family? He's like, I want my children back. And uh, he's basically, well... You're going to have to pay me all this money, and she didn't have this money. Why did she have to pay the money? He wanted uh, money back for food, clothing, uh, I guess shelter for the children. And it had been five years at this point, five or somewhere, six years. Yeah, somewhere around there. And she was of little means. She was a seamstress in a factory. She didn't have that money. I guess she pleaded with them as best she could. Margarita hung up the phone. Eventually, Conrado called back. Again, the time is hard to pin down. But at this point, we're in 1997 or 1998. Conrado calls again. And he's like, do you want your child? She says, look, I'm talking about two children. I'm like, I want Maribel and Angelica. He's like, look, do you want, do you want them back? And, and uh, she's like, yeah, all right, well, meet me at this restaurant. So they meet in, in a restaurant in Queens. And um, Margarita tells me she took Lauren seated to the restaurant. But when she gets into the restaurant, she sees Conrado. He's at the table with Maribel. And she's, I guess she's panicking. And she's like, where is uh, Angelica? Conrado is like, I, I don't know. He said he was in Mexico for a while. And when he got back, Balbina told him that Angelica was dead. Margarita asked him how she died, where she was buried. He said he didn't know. And then he started getting frustrated. And he got to a point like, do you want this kid or what? And so Margarita took Maribel home. As for Angelica? She told me she felt... Uh, what she knew of Conrado, that maybe he sold her. Maybe she didn't want to believe that she was dead. Margarita finally had Maribel back, but she wasn't in good shape. I remember us trying to go through the health department and trying to find medical records for them, and there were none. Maribel was eight or nine years old, and she'd never been to school. Margarita enrolled her, but... It didn't work out. She took her daughter back home to her, her mother in Mexico. And she left her there for a few years to start with school and be around her older daughters. Like the man said, it's a long story. So now uh, Margarita gave her a full statement as to what she had known and why she didn't have her children. And Dewhurst believed that what Margarita told him was true enough. But we're supposed to be at the stage where you don't hedge or dodge or hide the parts that might make you look not so good. The moment of truth, you could say. It bothered Bobby that when Margarita told him about meeting Conrado at the restaurant, she said that her oldest son, an adult, waited outside to keep her safe. Who's this now? She hadn't mentioned him before. And this is the part that bothered me. She says she never wanted to give up the kids, never stopped trying to find them. Remember that first confrontation scene with Balbina at the door? The little girls 
they're not going to live with you. They're going to live with me. They're my children now. And she left the Pampers or whatever it was she had. If she's there to fight to get her kids back, why is she bringing supplies? But the most important thing, the only thing that matters, was that Margarita had nothing to do with the murder of baby Hope. And she didn't know who did. Dewhurst was done talking to her for now. Then her family started showing up to pick the kids up. So Maribel shows up. And like, come on, Maribel, we got to talk. So me and Sylvia talked to Maribel. And Maribel didn't want to really talk to us. Maribel's 25 years old now. And a mother herself. But when the murder happened, she was three and a half years old. Memory is a tricky thing, especially for kids that young. Children can be considered swearable, able to testify, at six or seven, give or take, depending. But three-and-a-half-year-olds can remember things, even when they might not want to. She starts to talk, and, you know, it's emotional, and she's crying. And she did remember Angelica, in a way. But she didn't know it was her sister. Maribel just thought Angelica, Angie, she called her, was coming back. She was just another kid in the same bad place as she was. She also thought, because Angelica was smaller, I guess in stature, that this was a younger girl. Angie was a year older, but tiny, three foot two, 30 pounds. If Maribel thought Angie was a sister, she was her baby sister. Bobby Dewhurst didn't want to make her go back there, but he had to. Talking to him, it's clear that his admiration for Maribel is pretty profound. For a while, Bobby just wanted to talk about how great Maribel was, how great her husband was, how good they were doing. And I had to push him to go back to the ugly stuff, the same way he had to push Maribel. I, I would mention names to her, such as Balbina, and I would mention Effie Hania. And all she could tell me was, one was good and one was bad. As she elaborated about the bad one, she said the bad one would tie them to the legs of a, a table and that would feed her, like throw scraps at her as if she was an animal in a cage, scraps of food. They, they didn't have beds. They would sleep on the floor and their, their bedding was like a plastic tablecloth. Worse stuff too. Not sexual, but hateful. And uh, it was really terrible and she was getting real emotional and she really didn't want to go too much deeper into all the, let's say, atrocities. And while Maribel remembered one woman as mean, the other as nice, it's harder to tell the two apart at this distance. Maribel said that one night, she and Angelica were tied to the table. Angelica told her not to fall asleep. She eventually falls asleep. She has rustling in plastic bags. She hears, put her in, put her in, fold her over. And then she said she didn't see Angelica again, ever. Maribel described her last memory of Angie. She remembers Angelica uh, walking away with a man, like a man's holding her in her arms. She's happy. Maribel couldn't forget Angie, but she did a lot with the memory. It's kind of beautiful what she did. The way she remembered the last time she saw Angie, she was happy. Her hair was brushed and she was in a white dress. A nice man was taking her away. Maribel remembers watching her through the window when Angie waved goodbye. All of that is hard to hear, but the hardest for me is the part about the white dress. Angie did wear one, but not then. She wore a white dress at her funeral. 
Detective Jerry Giorgio and his family bought it for her. I don't want to sound mystical, but in a story as hideous as this one, you come across a moment of grace, you shouldn't let it go. Anyway, after Angie's gone, Maribel's still where she is, with the nice one and the mean one. Years pass, three or four maybe, and then Balbina dies. Months later, or maybe years, Conrado takes her to his apartment in the Bronx. From there, Maribel goes home to her mother, and then she goes down to Mexico. In time, Maribel opened up about what had happened, what she remembered about Angie. The sisters listened, and they took care of her, helped her get better. And that's the most strange and wonderful thing about how this case broke. Remember the Crime Stoppers tip to Elena Donnell? They saw their sister in a bag, dead in a refrigerator in the Bronx. Again, it was the decisive lead, but every factual detail in that sentence is inaccurate. Nothing happened in the Bronx. I'd bet the word cooler was mixed up with refrigerator. And it wasn't Maribel who talked to the woman in the laundromat. Whoever it was who said she remembered seeing her dead sister had never seen Angelica Castillo, alive or dead. But that tip, every word of it wrong, is what led to the discovery of the truth. We'll be right back after the break. So let's get back to it. Bobby Dewhurst has Margarita's story. He has Maribel's. The two main characters are the nieces, Balbina and Ephigenia. No matter which was the mean one, neither was the main suspect, since we have a sexual assault. We believe, we don't know, but we believe that the rape is not unrelated to the murder. So we have a guy there, we need to find the guy. There's Conrado, the nephew. But Ephigenia has a husband, and there might have been a male guest or two. It would take some digging. Ephigenia and Balbina were only nicknames, by the way. The Spanish custom is to go by two last names, the father's and the mother's. A cop or anyone else who took a report might get it wrong. On paper, Angelica Castillo could have been Angelica Ramirez or Angelica Castillo Ramirez. They couldn't just run the names and get an address back in five seconds. It took days of street work, computer work, knocking on doors. It's not as if the detectives needed any incentive to hustle, but then they got one. For 22 years, they'd wanted all the media attention they could get for Baby Hope. But if this was my case, I'd have lost it when I saw this on TV. There's been a break in a murder case that has stumped police for two decades. The victim was a young girl, but that's about all they knew about her until now. A tip came in after police posted flyers in the area this summer. Someone came forward saying they might know a relative, and that led detectives to the child's mother. Her DNA was a match. For the time being, police are not releasing Baby Hope's name, nor the name of the mother or father, fearing it might compromise the investigation. This does not help. The news might, in fact, inspire a person with a particular interest in the case to hop on a plane for parts unknown. But Dewhurst does get a lead on Ephigenia, an address, an apartment in Queens. Bobby and Wendell Stratford race out there. This time, they bring Detective Carlos Vasquez as a translator. He was in the juvenile crime squad, which also fell under O'Neill's command. They find Ephigenia, her husband, two sons. Not surprisingly, the family is less than cooperative. 
This is Wendell Stratford. You know, we had to do a lot of um, little skullduggery just to get them to admit that they were the right people because they didn't want to admit it at first. I, I believe that someone had made a phone call and told them that the police had been knocking, looking, you know, for you guys. We're not getting straight answers. We're going around in circles, round and round, this and that. So I'm like, I, I said, you know what? You know what we're gonna do? We're gonna leave. We're going to, we're going over to Brooklyn right now. And we take them to Brooklyn into my office and call Kitty Squad. The family members were interviewed separately. Ephehenia was the one they were most interested in, but since the murder was also a sex crime, the men weren't off the hook. That aspect of the case was another reason they asked Evelyn Gutierrez to help translate again. She'd helped with the first interview with Margarita in August when they got her DNA from an envelope. Evelyn had been in special victims for years. Wendell Stratford talked to the father. He didn't think the guy had a clue. There were two sons. Both boys said that Balbina was the cruel one, always beating the girls, calling them names. And Effie it was like pulling teeth. It was hard to get it out of her. But we didn't get much out of her. She was almost like argumentative with Balbina, her dead sister. She was like, why would she take on this responsibility of those two girls? Why? This is Evelyn Gutierrez. Ephehenia was very special. She wasn't um, really pleasant to speak to. When I conduct interviews, I try to humble myself down to that person. I, I felt that I had to come up to that person. Like I had to like, you know, like maybe try to humble her down so then this way we can meet somewhere. Um, she, was, she was pretty uh, aggressive when speaking. And this is Wendell Stratford. They were very like, you know, they brought these problems into my house. You know, we had to feed these kids. And then, you know, nobody was here to watch them. You know, I had my own family to take care of. They didn't belong here. You know, it was just it was just kind of crazy to hear people talk like that about, you know, two little children. Nobody wanted them. Nobody wanted the girls. Wendell said that Ephehenia admitted that the children were often tied up. She didn't untie them. She just left them like that. Said, not her responsibility. And she didn't feed them. Would not do it. Said, my sister took on that responsibility. That's, those are hers. So I have my own family. There were two girls in the house. And then one day, there was only one. Ephehenia didn't have much to say about that either. She remembers she's sleeping in her room, and that through the wall into the next room is where her sister Balbina was sleeping. And she hears a loud noise. And she's like, what's that? And she's like, I'm going to the park tomorrow. And Ephehenia's saying, what park? <laughs> and, she, and she says, don't worry about it. You don't like the park. I'm going to a park in Manhattan. She says they're talking through the wall. The wall is so thin they can have a casual conversation. So she says the following morning they order a cab and both her brother and her sister and Maribel take this cooler out of the, the apartment and they, they leave in a cab. And that's it. She says the sister returns, but she never, never makes an explanation about uh, where's Angelica. And Ephehenia doesn't ask. Not the most credible story. But she puts Conrado at the scene, which was interesting. Her sons say he's an alcoholic. He's drinking whenever he's not working. The manhunt for Conrado Juarez was on. O'Neill was in charge of fugitive enforcement, so he had a lot of cops to put into play, cops who specialized in this. 24 hours later, one of O'Neill's teams picked up Conrado at the Italian restaurant in the village where he worked. He's delivered to cold case in Brooklyn. No handcuffs. 
It's as friendly as they can make it. He wasn't under arrest. Bobby Dewhurst and Evelyn Gutierrez sit down with him, read him his rights. He signs the form, agrees to talk. I was there to do the Spanish interpretation, but I'm still an investigator. I immediately know, like, what the next question is going to be, so I'm involved in it. They ask to take a DNA sample. He agrees, signs another form. They swab his cheek. This is it. They got the guy in the box. Once I got that information from Margarita, who the child was, where the child was, and whom she was with, it was eight days before I had the man responsible for her death. So it took eight days of around-the-clock work. And in eight days, he was sitting right in front of me. Two things I should explain here. Today, every NYPD detective squad has an interview room set up for video. In my old squad, you can even get close-ups. There's a control panel in another room. Back then, when you had a guy in the box, and 2013 was still back then, you read a guy's rights, talk to him for a while, and if you had anything to say, you called the DA. The DA brought the camera and an operator to record an official statement. The other thing, the box. That's what we call an interview room. For detectives, how good you are in the box is how good you are at your job. Different approaches work with different people. You can go in like a therapist talking about feelings or like a used car salesman smiling while you try and close the deal. I'd bet the best interrogators are very good at poker. You're calling bluffs, looking for tells. With Conrado, Bobby Dewhurst and Evelyn Gutierrez have to take their time. They need to get to know him a little bit. They don't know what he knows. I want to create some sort of a timeline with them as to when he came into the country, who he was with, where he was living. Here's the short version. Came from Mexico when he was a teenager. Worked as a dishwasher, still does. Lived with his brother in the Bronx for a while and then with his sisters in Queens. Wife and kids now in the Bronx again. He'd gone back to Mexico a couple of times, sometimes for years at a stretch. He doesn't ask why he's there. Now they've talked for a while. They're not complete strangers anymore. He was very calm. Dewhurst moves a little closer to the subject at hand. I'm looking for a man by the name of Hanaro Ramirez. Do you know who he is? He says, yeah, I know him, but I don't like him. He's my uncle. Conrado says his uncle had a wife, Margarita. He says they had two children together, two girls, not three. So I, I kind of rephrased it. I said, you know, the Hanaro I'm looking for may not be the same guy because uh, he's got three daughters. Uh, but he does have a niece's name, Balbina and Efiania. Conrado agrees. Yeah, those are his sisters, so that's his uncle, Hanaro. They must be talking about the same guy. He didn't say Angelica. I said, you sure it's not Angelica? He's, oh, yeah, 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 that's the one. Conrado said that his mother was sick at the time, and he went to Mexico to see her. When he came back, his sister Balbina said the girl had died. But she refused to tell him anything else. Whenever he would ask Balbina, Balbina wouldn't really wouldn't really say anything about it, and, and that she'd get angry and only say, look, she, she died, let's, let's just forget about that, and that's it. He said Balbina died without saying anything else about it. Never told him, never told Efehenia either. He hadn't lived with his sisters for years, he said. He was in the Bronx with his wife. But back then, he did stay over, maybe one night a week. One of his dishwashing jobs was at a restaurant in Queens. It would have taken him three hours to get there by train from the Bronx. The girls loved him, he said. 
called him uncle, kissed him, would lie in bed with him. I start, I guess, uh, zeroing in a little bit more. Did Conrado know about Baby Hope? Had he seen the news on TV in the past couple of days? Yes and yes. Conrado knew Angie was Baby Hope. She looked just like the sketch. So now everybody knows what's going on here. And everybody knows that everybody knows. I'd say that the time for playing games was over, but apparently it wasn't. He was more like evasive. Like he really, like he was trying to find out more from us than, than, than anything else. He wanted to see what we had. Dewurst asks if Balbina had been tough on the girls. No, he said. Maybe she spanked them if they acted up, but no. Evelyn tells him she heard different. So then that's when I said, your sister said a lot of bad things happen in that house. Conrado doesn't about face. Uh, yeah, Balbina would tie them up. He said the girls were babies when they first arrived, and they were big by the end. So then I asked him, are you taking the secrets to your grave? And he nodded. Some people never confess. Some people deny everything until they don't. And then it's like flipping a switch. You can't shut them up. They're running out of paper, writing it all down. Other people give it up bit by bit. I wasn't there turns into, I was there, but I didn't even see anything. And then it's, the other guy had the gun. You go over it again and again, and you get one new admission on each round. Truth on the installment plan. That's the way this one was going. I'm not sure if I'd have had the patience for this one. Not the patience, but the stomach. I never worked in sex crimes, never wanted to, especially crimes against children. But Evelyn had. She gave a random example from one of her cases. How can a 40-year-old man tell me that his 10-year-old daughter is jumping on his lap and she's enticing him? 10-year-olds don't do that. So listening to people's stories when, when, when I'm interviewing them and, and they're saying these things, you have to... I guess you got to kind of agree with them and say, yes, yes, tell me more. I, I try to normalize it. I sympathize with them. I basically want to hear their story. You know, I don't think you're a bad person. People do bad things. It's the best way to gain their confidence. I go in like with either a mother approach. I really try not to go in with the detective approach because I want them to open up to me. I come from the heart, you know? You can be the worst person sitting in front of me, and I'm coming to you from the heart. And she answered from the heart when I asked about her first impression of Conrado. I saw a straight-up pedophile. That's what I saw, a straight-up pedophile. All right, so it was time to push him a little more. They showed him a picture of the cooler. That's when his whole attitude changed. Like you could see a little bit more slump on the chair. The line of questioning now becomes more intensified. All right, Conrado says. He admits to knowing a little bit about the cooler. He tells about his sister calls him up uh, to help him bring this cooler to the park. They bring it to the park. They leave the cooler, and then they walk away. In that version, he didn't know what was in the cooler? At first, he didn't know what was in the cooler. So he's like, hey, we just left the cooler, and that was it. So uh, I get him to write a statement. This is Conrado's statement, translated by Evelyn Gutierrez. My sister asked me as a favor to accompany her to the park for us to take the icebox without me knowing what it carried inside. We took a cab toward 207, and there she told me we would deposit the cooler. I asked what was the reason for leaving it there, and she answered angrily that we should go back to catch the train or a taxi. I asked what was inside the cooler. She did not answer me. 
That's why I tell you, friends, don't ever do a favor for anyone. As the saying goes, if one kills and the other is holding the leg, both are criminals. That's the first part of the statement. I read it word for word. There isn't much more, but I'll just give you the highlights. They were a nice family. I keep asking myself why she did it. The girls were beautiful. Why did this tragedy end up happening? After their mother handed them over, she never visited them. She never asked about them either, and that's how things were. I was kind to them. At no point did I ever abuse them. After he writes a statement, and I was basically like, come on, what was in the cooler? He's like, all right, right, the kid was in the cooler. The rest of the story he sticks to. He's home in the Bronx when Balbina calls. He knows Angie's inside the cooler, but he never opens the lid. Balbina never tells him what happened, and he still has no idea. It's around three weeks before the body's found. And he knew Angie was baby Hope from the beginning. He'd known all along. It was good to hear that but the admission didn't really get the detectives any closer to where they had to go. Evelyn asked Conrado if he thinks Angie is resting in peace now. Yes, he says. It's just before midnight. They take a break, get food. Bobby Dewhurst asks Conrado if he knows what DNA is. Gutierrez explains that semen was found on the body and that scientists could tell if it came from him. Dewhurst holds up the DNA kit. I'm showing him and saying, is this going to be a problem? And he's like, no. The thing is, DNA wasn't a problem for Conrado. Back in 91, the evidence of sexual assault came from a chemical test for prostate-specific antigen. It can establish the presence of seminal fluid, but not who it came from. There was no DNA profile of the assailant. Conrado didn't know that. At that point, Bobby takes one of Conrado's hands and cuffs him to a chair. He leaves, and then Evelyn leaves as well. I know this from reading Bobby Dewhurst's extremely meticulous, eight-page, single-spaced report of the interview. Carlos Vasquez was taking over as translator. He'd been watching outside, along with Wendell Stratford, James O'Neill, and others. Bobby wanted to regroup before he went back in. But there was also a little psychology at work, or maybe a little theater. The handcuffs would remind Conrado who was in control. They had to keep pushing him, maybe switch it up a little. Sometimes men will open up to a woman, and sometimes there are things they can only talk about guy to guy. Yes, I know how that sounds. Now I go back in with Carlos Vasquez, my present partner, and uh, he translates. And Wendell Stratford came in too. So I'm... Hey, these guys weren't in the room. Let's start from the beginning again. This is Wendell Stratford again. I don't want to stereotype him, but he was like one of those guys that that he just would give you that look like, why am I here? What did I do? I don't know why you guys are bothering me. You know, like you want to smack him in the back of the head and be like, you know, sit up. And, you know, you know what time it is. But he just, you know, arms on the table, head down. For the record, Detective Stratford did not smack the suspect. Chief O'Neill was watching, and he'd arranged for representatives from the legal bureau to observe the interrogation. There were not going to be any mistakes. We're getting him to to open up more. You know, he was being cagey, and Balbina's dead. He was building up to blame his sister. Conrado said Balbina would tie the girls up when she wasn't home. 
and she was out working just about all the time. We were like, what do you mean? Tied them like how? And he goes, oh, they put the rope on their neck. I said, rope on their neck? And he goes, yes. Um, I said, well, show me. So I had my, um, I had a suit on, and so I took my tie off. I made a loop and put it around my neck, and I said, show me. And he told me to sit down on the floor, so I sat down on the floor, and he took the other end of my tie and tied it to the doorknob. And I said, well, what was the purpose of this? And he goes, because if she leaned forward, it would choke her, and that way she'd have to sit up. Then She couldn't lay down, so she'd have to sit up the whole time, and that's how they would keep them in line. Um, he made some reference to, you know, wanted to keep the kids out of the refrigerator from eating the food and stuff when they weren't around. Conrado keeps insisting he wasn't there when Angie died. He had worked that night, and he had gone home, and, and Balbina called him to come help him help move something. And we knew it was a lie because we kind of pinned him in a corner about the timeline for it. The subway ride. He said it took him hours to get to Queens. And then he acquiesced and, and said, oh, yeah, 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 I must have been in the apartment. I was there. He just said the cooler was already packed. He didn't know how she died. She was just like that. He found her that way. And then we went back at him. But the progress wasn't steady. When Conrado admits something new, he denies something he just admitted. But now he gives them this. He gets these calls from his sister Balbina saying, you got to come. When he's at work, you got to come here, you got to help me out. Uh, when he shows up, he said Angelica was on the floor, I guess in the hallway, on, on a green tarp. You know, the girl was dead. And then he admitted to putting her in the cooler. I said, well, how'd you make a fit? And then he even showed us how he put her in the, you know, what he did to get her into the cooler. He was doing this with his hands, and he folded the body over. Her feet were up over her head, and her shins were in front of her face. You know, tied her so she, she would stay in a particular position. And so she was placed in a bag, put in the cooler. He put soda cans on top of her, covered it, and put the top on. He sat back and was like, you know, put his hands up in that, yeah, that's it. What else you want? Now, at that point, he has a sister, a dead sister he can blame. He still says that he doesn't know how she died. Correct. You don't have a case. Well, we, we got a case because he put himself there. He put himself there, and we're 75% closer than we were 20 years ago. I feel a little bad listening to that. I'm telling Wendell what DAs have told me over the years when I've hit an impasse in a homicide investigation. You don't have enough. He says what I've said to them. You know we got the right guy here. But we both know that 75% is a number that doesn't matter. You got him or you don't. He's thinking, and we, we can see he's sitting there, he's thinking, and we didn't even hit him with the sex abuse stuff yet. Yeah, there's that. The evidence kit with DNA on the table. They could have bluffed. They could have claimed that it would prove that he raped her. Legally, they were allowed to do that, but they didn't. They'd brought it up, let it drop for a while. It was time to get back to it. I figured I'd have to, I gotta be his friend. I don't want to be accusatory. I don't want to be, uh, you know, you did this and you better tell us. That, that gets nothing. You get nowhere with that. So I had to find an angle. He would say how, uh, you know, they loved him. They'd come in. They'd lie down with them. They'd play with them. In my mind, he was just grooming the kids to get them ready because he's a perv. That's, and that's what they do. It wasn't as if Ephigenia was the most reliable source. 
but she'd told Wendell this. And that she had warned Valbina to watch Conrado around the girls because he does things with them that a grown man shouldn't do with little girls, kissing them on the mouth. The detective suggested that maybe he had too much to drink, and out of love for these kids, there was some kind of accident. Putting things that way, Conrado could see something like that might have happened. And then he goes on to say that he was drunk, and when he got home, Angelica was coming out of the bathroom, and that's when he brought her in the room, and he said he had sex with her. That's it, though, he said. Just that once, just that kid. Not Maribel, ever. And certainly no one else. It was a major breakthrough. You could say they went from 75% to 95% there. But that's still not there. He said the sex, the sexual assault, and the death had nothing to do with each other. It was days, maybe weeks, between the two crimes. Conrado could not be charged with rape. The statute of limitations had long passed. He denied killing her. No one believed him, but a defense lawyer could say, truthfully, that his client did not have a monopoly on child abuse in that house. Far from it. They take a break. It's time to call the DA and get what they have on video. They're so close. Maybe they'll get a little more when Melissa Morges came. Same DA since the beginning. Evelyn Gutierrez sees Conrado doze off for a bit. That's good to see. There's an old detective adage that only the guilty sleep. When they set up a camera, it's Melissa Morges, Bobby Dewhurst, Carlos Vasquez in the box now. This is on video. I've seen it. Conrado sits there. He's a small man, big mustache. He has a white short sleeve shirt buttoned down. His arms are crossed, as if he might be a little cold. They start again at the beginning. Good morning, Mr. Ramirez. Good morning. My name is Melissa Morges. ASAM, I'm Melissa Morges. And um, I work okay. for the district attorney's office. Conrado sits there, arms folded. He grunts and nods at the questions, looking back and forth between Carlos and the DA. You know how the rest of the Miranda warnings go. I'll skip ahead. Um, now that I have given you this information about your rights, um, are you willing to talk to me? Conrado looks down for a second, and then he shakes his head. It's a quick shake, almost as if he's shivering. Bobby Dewhurst must have really, really hoped it was a shiver, because otherwise Conrado seems to be saying no. He doesn't want to talk anymore. That isn't clear, though. Carlos has to ask. Now that you know your rights, do you want to talk? No. This time, the answer is clear. He said he doesn't want to speak with us. Next on Break in the Case, the final chapter of the Baby Hope story. Break in the Case is produced by the New York City Police Department and supported by the New York City Police Foundation. Thanks to CBS News. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Detective Carrie Riley. Until next time, be safe.